this past Thursday, of course, was Thanksgiving. It's a time where many of us got a chance to hang out with family, hang out with friends, have good food, fellowship. And, and this idea of thankfulness, we've been kind of focusing in maybe from different angles this month because it's such an important theme that takes us into Christmas, that that should be the attitude of our heart. And I want us to, to, to approach it today from the attitude of thankfulness for Jesus Himself. As a way of review in the book of Colossians, Paul wrote this epistle to the church in Colossae. Colossae is in what we know as modern Turkey. And in that church, there, there were problems with false teachers coming into the church, and there was a, a mix of beliefs. The Colossians, that, that particular culture, they kind of pick and chose different religious beliefs and kind of melded them together. So you had kind of a blend of strict legalism, Judaism, mixed with some mysticism. There were people that were saying that they had visions directly from God. And then you had others that taught that Jesus truly wasn't human, that He Himself was kind of like a ghost. He's kind of like an emanation from God. And so to fight all these mix of beliefs, Paul writes this letter and he wrote it because the pastor of the church, his name was Epaphras, he comes and visits Paul. Paul's in a Roman cell, in a Roman prison. And he asks him for help, and so Paul writes this letter. And, and what he does in verses 1 through 8, Paul kind of opens up with a prayer. And he, and he basically is, is praying for them, telling them that he's thankful for their faith in Jesus Christ. And then as we saw what Brian read, he, he, he then kind of lays out Four things in that prayer. One, he says he's praying for their spiritual wisdom. That he's hoping that they would understand and hold on to the truth of the gospel. Two, he's praying for their walk with Christ. That their walk would be one that was walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then he says he's praying, third, for spiritual fruit that there would be a result from this life lived out with Christ. And then fourth, he prays for their strength and endurance, that they would stay and stand fast in the truth of the gospel. And then he does a shift, and he starts talking about being thankful. But particularly, he's talking about being thankful for our salvation in Jesus Christ. Guys, there are a lot of things to be thankful for, but we should be so thankful for the blood of the cross. And so Paul's going to point out here three reasons why we as followers of Jesus Christ should be so thankful. So why should we be thankful? First thing we'll see this morning. Jesus qualifies us for heaven. Jesus qualifies us for heaven. Now, when you talk to most people on the street, which I get a chance to do periodically, you'll find that most people believe that the way to know God is usually through something that they've done. There's some way to earn God's favor, to appease God. They have to do something other than what Christ has done and who He is. Look at verse 12. It says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. Now, what I want to do here is I want to add the last word in verse 11, because that word is joyously. It's connected. Joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance 
of the thanks in life. We're to joyously be giving thanks to the Father as believers in Christ. And if you're a Christian, you should be thankful. Not just because we're supposed to, but because of the truth of who Christ is and what He's done. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. I mean, what gift is he talking about? He's talking about the gift of grace through Jesus Christ that each of us have inherited through Christ. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for His kindness. Thanks be to God for Jesus. I mean, without Jesus, we got nothing. Now, the word joyously there is connected to verse 12. So, we're to be joyously giving thanks. He's talking about overflowing joy. The joy that we as Christians can have, the joy that is naturally ours in Christ. I hope you understand joy is not based on circumstances. Happiness is based on circumstances. Happenstance, it's based on whatever's happening in your life. You're either happy or you're not. But joy is based on truth. You know, I heard John MacArthur talk about joy, and I loved his definition. He says, joy is a settled conviction that God is sovereign and on the throne. And because of that truth, whoever knows Christ and is in Christ, whatever happens in this life is for our good and for His glory. Again, God is sovereign. And so whatever happens to us as His people is for our good and for His glory. Guys, it's a settled conviction based on truth. And so we can have joy no matter the situation, no matter the circumstance. And so we are to joyously give thanks. But why? Well, Paul tells us right here, because he has qualified believers in Jesus to share in the inheritance of saints of light. Jesus has qualified us. Now, qualified is a Greek word, hikanu, and it means to make someone sufficient, to empower them, to authorize them, or to make them fit. That means that we cannot qualify ourselves for God. That means we can't make ourselves fit into His kingdom. That means that we cannot be sufficient in ourselves. We need someone else to make us sufficient. It is Jesus who qualifies us. And without Him, we would never be qualified. Understand what the Bible says about us and our natural condition. The Bible teaches that everyone who does not know Christ, that the natural condition of man is that we are so lost, unable to even know God. And before God saved us by His grace, by His unmerited favor, there was nothing that we could do. Now, Paul speaks about this in a number of places in his epistles. I want to share a couple of them with you. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. He says in Romans chapter 1, verses 29 through 31, that those in the natural condition, that we are filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil. We're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, 
malice, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. I mean, I don't know what to add, but that is the position we were in without Christ. He says in Ephesians that we're without hope, without God, without understanding. He said in Romans that literally we are haters of God. That we're rebellious, we're insolent. And on and on we could go. Without Christ, bottom line, it is hopeless. We could never be sufficient. We could never qualify to the standard of perfection of who God is, His holiness. It could never happen. But by God's grace, He qualifies the unqualified. In Christ, because of His shed blood, because of His perfect life and standing, He qualifies us. For what? To receive an inheritance. He qualifies us for heaven. Neil, when I first heard him preach, he used the term heaven ready. Christ makes us heaven ready. There is an inheritance waiting for us. Now, it's interesting that 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 is a participle, that word qualified, but it's present tense. That means that this inheritance that we have isn't just future, but it's present tense and future. When you see anything present tense in in Greek, that means it's now moving forward. We are qualified now, and we will be qualified then when we are in glory. And this is an inheritance waiting for us. Paul says this in Romans 8, 16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children were heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, indeed, if we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified with Him. You have this present and future tense there. Peter says that that inheritance, that it's imperishable, that it's undefiled. He says that it will not fade away, that it's actually reserved in us in heaven and that it's held by God for us. We have a guaranteed inheritance because of Christ. And our inheritance, it includes three things. One, the promise of eternal life. Now, eternal life is also present and future. Jesus talked about the abundant life. Eternal life in that sense means that we have a purpose now. We have meaning in this life. We have an abundant life with relationship with God now and a future guarantee in heaven. It also includes the earth. Jesus says in Matthew... In the Sermon on the Mount, he said that all believers will inherit the earth. There's going to come a time where Jesus will come and reign on this earth and we will co-reign with Him. So not only do we have an abundant life now, a promise of a future, we also have a life promised on earth that will co-reign with Christ. In addition to that, we have an inheritance of all the promises. Yes, the promise of eternal life, but also the promise of everlasting joy. All the promises are made to us. And Jesus has qualified us who trust Him to be saints in the light. Now, some people, when they hear that word saints, there's kind of a disconnect. I mean, aren't there just certain people that are saints and that somehow some denomination or some church has said that's the saint? 
But understand, the scriptures say that if you know Christ, you are considered a saint. That word hagion in the Greek means to be set apart. Set apart to God. Set apart for Christ. And understand that this set apart means that the, the inheritance is not for everyone. There are some that will not receive an inheritance. Paul said this in Ephesians 5, 5, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He also says, Jesus says that there will be those that will not see heaven. Matter of fact, Jesus qualifies it and says that only those who are born again will see the kingdom of God. John 3, 3 says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So we have this in heaven, we have heaven reserved, but it's only reserved for those who are saints, those who are set apart, those who have been born again, born anew, those who have a new life in Christ, those who have been changed. And saving faith in Christ gives us that. And he says that this inheritance is in the light. Now, now light, when you look at it biblically, it has two basic meanings. Intellectually, it represents truth. Morally, it represents purity. And what he's saying here is that the saints in light are those who have believed in the truth, have trusted in the truth, who live by the truth, and who live lives that demonstrate that they've been changed. They live for Christ. We have these changes positionally with God, and because we have this change in Christ, now we want to live for Him even more. Now, some people say, now, wait a minute. I mean, don't our good works, doesn't that make the difference? Understand, if you are saved, then you will do good works, but good works cannot save you. Good works are a result of the changes that have taken place in us. And God has graciously given us a guarantee of our inheritance. He's made a promise, a guarantee, if you will, a a promise to us that is tangible. And that promise is the Holy Spirit. Paul says this in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. He says, in Him, being Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. That word pledge is is the Greek word erabon. And it can also mean engagement ring or guarantee or down payment. God has given us a down payment, a, a guarantee of our coming inheritance in Christ. He qualifies us. He qualifies us spiritually. Jesus Himself is the perfect substitute that we need. He was substituted in our place. He was the atoning sacrifice for us. On the cross, He cleansed us from all sin. He became our advocate with the Father. He became what's known as a propitiation. He took God's judgment and wrath so we would not experience judgment. But also, He qualifies us practically, physically. In Christ, the Bible says, you have all that you need for life and godliness. The Bible says that Jesus becomes like a friend, closer than a brother. The Bible teaches that 
Jesus is the great physician, and that He heals us emotionally, spiritually, and sometimes physically. The Bible teaches that Jesus is sufficient for all things, so sufficient for the spiritual and also for the practical. Charles, Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, remember, sinner, it is not your hold of Christ that saves you, it is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you, it is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though it is the instrument, but it is Christ's blood and His merits. Look not to your hope, but to Christ, the source of your hope. Look not to your faith, but to Christ, the author and finisher of your faith. And if you do that, a thousand devils cannot throw you down. It is Christ. Sometimes it's so hard to put together an illustration that might actually work talking about that we're qualified in Him. But guys, I've done a lot of traveling this past month. We spent eight days with my son and, and his wife and kids in Europe, and then right back again, we spent 12 days on a trip to Israel. Wonderful time. But one thing that, that happened on, on the trip is, is our son has all these miles. I mean, that, that guy travels again and again. And because he travels so much, he gets this thing called a special priority pass. Now, if you've ever done a lot of traveling, you see these people that just seem to go to the front of the line, and they seem to have these special lounges, and they get special seats on the plane. Well, that's my son, because he does a ton of, ton of traveling. But when we went traveling, Karen and I, we got a special priority pass. We got to actually get in the front of the line, and even got a little special seat, and all this kind of stuff. Was that because of something we did? No. It's because our son paid the price. It's because our son had all those miles. He's the one that earned it. We didn't. It's a very small picture of what Christ has done for us. He is the one that qualifies us. Are you thankful? Jesus is the one. That's the first thing we see this morning. Jesus qualifies us for heaven. Second thing, Jesus rescues us from the kingdom of darkness. He qualifies us, but He also rescues us. The Bible teaches that without Christ, we would be lost in darkness. Look at verse 13. It says, He rescued us from the domain of darkness, and He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. It says, He rescued us from the domain of darkness. The rescue is from the Greek word, ruomai. And it means to draw to oneself, to deliver, to rescue. That means that God drew us out of Satan's kingdom of darkness. And He drew us into His kingdom, which is the kingdom of life. And the way it's speaking here, it's not speaking about gradually drawing us out. But it's a one-time act. It's an immediate act that happens at the point of conversion. The moment you prayed and received Christ... At that moment, you were freed from the kingdom of darkness, and you entered in to the kingdom of light. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Now, this is kingdom language. It's talking about that there is an evil kingdom and a kingdom of goodness and grace. And the depiction here is that the evil kingdom is ruled and reigned by Satan. And when Jesus came here on earth, He preached kingdom. 
Listen to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It says, Now after John had taken into custody, Jesus came into the Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So kingdom language, it it, it reveals two opposing kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. The kingdom of light is God's kingdom where Jesus Christ reigns. The kingdom of darkness is Satan's kingdom, where he is in control, and he is against the kingdom of light. And for those of us that have received Jesus Christ, we have been rescued from the domain of darkness. That word domain is exousius, and it means control or power or jurisdiction or authority. That means we were taken out of the authority of Satan, and we were brought under the authority of Christ Now, Jesus spoke about this reality in John chapter 8, verse 12. He said, then Jesus spoke again, saying, I am light of the world, and he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. For those of us who know Christ, we are no longer to walk in darkness because now we've been transferred from that domain to Christ's domain. Ephesians 5, 8 say, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. In other words, walk in who you are. You are now of Christ's kingdom. The question is, do you realize you've been rescued? Too often, when I I speak to people, they don't realize that they've been freed. They've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness. They still live as if they're under its control. If you are in Christ, you have the ability to say no to that. And the great news is, we were trapped. We were lost. But now we literally have been transferred. And it says here to the kingdom of His beloved Son. We've been transferred to the kingdom of Christ. Now, transferred is the Greek word metastime. And it means to remove or change or to be transported. Literally, we've been transported from the kingdom of darkness into our Lord's kingdom. And Jesus Christ did not rescue us to have us walk aimlessly, but He rescued us to walk in boldness. And kingdom does not refer only to a millennial kingdom, but kingdom is speaking about a kingdom now. Now, do you understand that that the kingdom of God, it's an already not yet kingdom? Already. The moment you received Christ, you were given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Christ now reigns within you. It's kingdom now. And wherever you go, you bring the kingdom of Christ with you. Not yet. One day, Jesus will return. He will establish His kingdom on earth and will reign supreme and we will co-reign with Him. It's an already not yet kingdom. But it's a kingdom in the beloved Son. And that term, beloved Son, means the Son of His love. This is a kingdom based on the love of God. This is a kingdom based on a rescue mission that literally rescued you and pulled you out and planted you in His kingdom. And we are called to live for Him. But I want to tell you something. Some people think, well, well, since I've been born again and since I know Jesus, that means it's a cakewalk, right? No, it's a fight. Because the kingdom of darkness still reigns on this earth. And so we have three enemies. 
You know, I spoke a couple months ago in the book of Nehemiah about three enemies that we face, and I want to go over that with you again. It is your own flesh, it is the world, and it is the devil. Now, we have three enemies. That first enemy is us, our own flesh. As a Christian, you've been given a new nature. That means the Holy Spirit now comes within you. But that Holy Spirit and that new nature resides in sinful flesh. And so there is a battle going on on who will reign, who will rule. Paul says this in Galatians 6, 7, and 8. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So you have a battle going on in you between the Spirit and the flesh. And the one that you sow to, the one you give over to, is the one that will reign. You will either reap corruption or you will reap eternal life. And so I'm calling you to fight. And you determine whom you will serve. Paul also said in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance to lust and deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new self. Paul is saying, do not live into the old self, but live into the new self. Live as who you are. He also said in Romans 6, 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. So victory is possible. We are new creation in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit residing in us, but we must fight. First enemy, our sinful flesh. Second enemy is the world and the world system. Now, this is the unhealthy environment opposed to the things of God. And the Bible teaches that the world system and its ways of doing things is always trying to gain influence and control even over believers. And we know that John says, do not love the world or the things of the world. But we are to fight the world with truth, the truth of the word. Now, John says this in John 5, 19. He says, we know that we are of God that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The world is under the influence and dominance of Satan. It is under his control, and we as God's people must resist and fight and honor God. And the third enemy is Satan himself. Now, Satan is a powerful being. He has no control over us, but he can influence us. And God has allowed Satan a certain amount of power and control over the kingdoms of this age. Now, we know that because when Jesus was tempted, right, that was one of his temptations. Satan offered him the kingdoms of the world, and Jesus didn't say, hey, you have no authority to do that. No, Jesus just denied him with the word. But we are called in 2 Corinthians 4.4 to fight. And Paul says that, that Satan is called the God of this age. He's not a god. Satan is a fallen angel, and his demon horde are fallen angels. John Owen said this in the 17th century pastor. This is what he said about Satan. He says, Satan, original great design, wherever the gospel is preached, is to blind the eyes of men, that the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should not shine to them or illuminate their minds. He will endeavor by all means to trouble, to discompose, to darken the minds even of them that believe. 
so that they shall not be able to retain clear and distinct views of Christ's glory. Here's his strategy, simple. Three Ds, deceit. Satan is a liar. He is the father of lies. And he wants to whisper lies into your life, whispering lies to you that you don't know Christ, that you have no power in Him. Don't live for Him. Deceit. When a person listens to the deceit, they doubt. Satan wants you to doubt. He wants you to doubt who you are. He wants you to doubt the the sureness of the gospel, the sureness of the blood of Christ. He wants you to doubt that you're in Christ. Why? It makes you ineffective. What's that bring? Discouragement. Satan wants you to be discouraged because someone who is discouraged is not bold for Christ. Three weapons that he uses, deceit, doubt, discouragement. What do we do? We fight with truth. Just as our Lord Jesus Christ fought with the truth of the Word when He was tempted, we ourselves need to fight with truth. We must always remember as followers of Christ, we belong to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And the question is, are you thankful? The question is, do you believe it? I read a story this past week in in a book written by Brennan Manning. It's called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And Brennan Manning, um, he had confessed in his book that 25 years earlier, he'd been an alcoholic and he had to go through a treatment program for one month. And during that treatment program, they, they basically would, would take the men that were there and they put them in a circle. And the first thing they did is they, they got them in. They had to confess that they were actually alcoholics, that they had a drinking problem. And so they went around man to man to man saying, hey, you need to confess. And every man confessed except one guy. His name was Max, and he was a businessman. And Max said, you know, I really don't have much of a, a drinking problem. Well, one thing that Max did, he had signed a document that allowed them to call anybody that Max knew, and he had to give the names and numbers of all family members, friends, even the owners of the bars that he used to associate with. And so there was a phone in the middle of this group, and the guy says, yeah, I'm going to put this on speakerphone. We're going to call the bartender next to your work. And so they called the bartender, and the bartender said, oh, yeah, Max, yeah, he's my buddy. He comes in every night after work, and he pounds down six or eight drinks every night. So Mac goes, yeah, okay, I got a drinking problem. Well, the next phase was they said, have you ever hurt anybody when you were drunk? And everyone in the circle said, yeah, 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 I've hurt somebody when I was drunk, you know, a friend, a family member. But Mac says, no, I've never hurt anybody. I would never hurt anybody. I mean, I wouldn't hurt my family. I wouldn't hurt friends. And the leader says, you know, Max, we don't believe you. So he called Max's wife. And he says, you know, Mrs. So-and-so, has Max ever hurt anybody when he was drunk? She says, yes. As a matter of fact, just this last Christmas Eve, he had our daughter, our nine-year-old daughter, and he, and he took her shopping. And he bought her some shoes. He's very generous. And after he bought her the shoes, they were heading home, and he was passing his favorite bar, and he saw some cars of his friends in the bar. Now, understand, this is in Missouri. It's 12 degrees. He pulls in. And he says, honey, you wait here. He leaves the car running, leaves the heater on, and he goes into the bar, and he stays there till after midnight. Well, the engine died. The police finally came. They got the girl out. They had to amputate her thumb and her finger, and she lost her hearing because of the cold. And on the speakerphone, as the, the wife is explaining this, Matt falls to the floor, and he finally admits and acknowledges 
his sin, that he's addicted to alcohol, that he's been living in darkness. And can I tell you something? When I read that, I truly believe there are some here right now. This is the start for you. Now, that was the beginning for Max to get free from alcohol, but even more, it was the beginning to him to find freedom in Christ. He had to acknowledge that he was living in darkness. And some of you this morning have to acknowledge that. You are in darkness. You are not living for Christ. You need to start there. And when you acknowledge that truth, then the truth of the light of the gospel is available for you. And for those of us that have been freed, rescued from darkness, we are so grateful. Two things we see this morning. One, Jesus qualifies us for heaven. He rescues us from the kingdom of darkness. And finally, He redeems us from the bondage of sin. He redeems us from bondage to sin. Now, most people would never admit that they're enslaved, right? I mean, if you ask somebody, hey, are you, are you a bond slave? Are you enslaved? They go, nah, I'm not enslaved. But the way the Bible teaches is that a person without Christ is enslaved, that they are in bondage. Look at verse 14. He says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so that Greek word for redemption is alpatrusis, and it, it, it's describing the riches of our salvation. It means to deliver by a payment. It mean, it's used to speak of freeing slaves from bondage. If, if you put it in English, it would be known as emancipation, the idea of freeing somebody who's been enslaved. A related word in the Hebrew was also used when the Israelites were freed from bondage to Egypt. Now, Paul put it like this in Romans seven fourteen. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into sin. He says, no, sold into bondage to sin. See, this is the beauty of the gospel message. The beauty of the gospel message is redemption. Now, it's similar to the idea of rescue, but redemption means that there is a price paid, that someone had to exact a price do you understand that there is a wage to sin? The wages of sin is what? Death. But what? The gift of God is eternal life through who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ paid that wage. Christ purchased us our freedom. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 7 says you were bought at a price. Ephesians 5, 7 says we have redemption through His blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of His grace. And it says there, the forgiveness of sins. That idea of forgiveness means to cancel a debt, to pay it in full. Again, this idea is that there was a debt that we owe, that this doesn't mean that He paid Satan. Satan has no hold on us. It means that we could not live up to the fulfillment of the law. And Christ is the one who fulfilled the law, making freedom and payment available for us. Do you know what Jesus' final words on the cross were? His final word was a Greek word, tetelestai. Now, tetelestai means it is finished. Praise God for that. The work of the cross 
is finished. But do you know it's also a merchant term? It's a merchant term that means paid in full. And in those days when they would release a prisoner out of prison and he paid his debt to society, they'd give him a document and they would stamp on there, paid in full, to tell us die. And on the cross, Jesus says, to tell us die, paid in full. Are you thankful? Are you grateful? I pray you are. Let's close. Father, we thank you for your grace. Lord, we see your kindness towards us in Christ. You have qualified us, Lord. You have rescued us. And Lord, you have paid the price that we need. We are so thankful as your people. May you move in power now in our midst, Lord. And may you be glorified in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Could I please take a stand? You know, I read a story this, this past week about a, it was an elite army unit in World War II that freed 500 POWs from a, a prison camp held by the Japanese in the Philippines. And it happened so fast that when they came in, they literally just captured the camp within, within moments. And you would think that the prisoners would be so grateful, but they had been so run down, they were so emancipated, they were so sick from malnutrition that there were some that wouldn't believe it. And there was one person in particular, and his last name was Banks, Sergeant Banks. And the reason this guy stuck out to me is because he was blind from malnutrition. And, and he couldn't see who his captives were, and, and the Japanese had always lied to him, and so he just didn't want to believe that he was actually free. He thought they were taunting him, teasing him. And then a man came up to him and said, don't you believe that you're free? And the man was from Alabama, and Banks was from Alabama, and he recognized the southern accent. He recognized his voice, and he said, oh, now I believe. Do you understand that Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me? Do you know Him? Because to be qualified by Christ, to be rescued by Christ, to have redemption in Christ, you must know Him. And I want to offer Him to you this morning. Jesus Christ is a free gift from God to us. He is offered freely to all who will respond in faith. And all you need to do is believe. And you go from darkness to life. If you're willing to believe this morning, you can pray this prayer with me. Let's bow our heads. And you can offer your life to Him and accept His free gift of grace. Pray this prayer if this is you. Heavenly Father, I confess that I am a sinner. I confess that I am lost in the darkness of sin. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. 
And I put my faith in you and your perfect work, your perfect life. I believe you paid for my sin on the cross. I believe you rose from the dead. I will follow you the rest of my life and help me, Lord. Help me to do that. And I pray this in Jesus' name.